Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay, excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much to Hannah and Trevor, to Angie, Ryan, to Emma and Louis for that wonderful opening. Indeed, it's, uh, I don't know if you noticed what jumped out to me and those songs we were singing, aside from the fact that just how it draws us to the Lord is that they've kind of walked through the gospel story, haven't they? We sung about Jesus dying, rising, sing hallelujah. How the Father has his arms open wide for us. Am I coming through? Still coming through? Okay. How the Father has his arms open wide for us. And we need to just accept that. And we can be a child of God. I am who he says I am. And I hope you are who he says you are. That everyone here is a child of God, or if not, before they leave here today, will be a child of God. <coughs> so this morning we're going to continue studying our study of the parables, and we're going to look at uh, four parables this morning, uh, actually depending how you count it, some count it as three. Uh, we're going to look at the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl, net, and we'll look at old and new treasures. Our passage is found, uh, if you're using a Brown Pew Bible, uh, in Matthew chapter 13. It can be found on page 1,500 and, can't read my own writing, 79 of these Brown Bibles. Question. Anybody here collect things? Any collectors out there? Aha. When I was growing up, it seemed like most people were collectors probably more so than today. Stamps, figurines, sports cards, cars, whatever. If you were a collector or were or are a collector of something, there's always that something, that one thing that you just need to have. I'll give you five Marcel Dion cards for a Guy Lafleur card. Um, maybe there's some here who want a Tom Brady card. And for those who don't know, he plays for the New England Patriots. Depending who you cheer for, you might not want his card. <laughs> but, but people who are collecting things like, say, figurines, they couldn't wait for the next year to see what that new figurine or that new thing was that they could add to their collection. So what is your most valuable possession? Maybe it's something in the collection. Maybe it's a fancy phone, a piece of jewelry, a car or a truck. Maybe it's a sled. I have to train myself to say sled because I come from the time when we called them skidoos. And I have to think twice when somebody says sled. Maybe it's your house. Maybe something of great sentimental value. I have a watch at home that has a lot of value to me probably isn't worth much because it doesn't keep proper time anymore. But it's as old as I am. Uh, it was My dad gave it to me and he bought it the year I was born. So I keep it, even if it doesn't work. Is there something that you would trade for to fill your collection? Is there something that you really, really want that you'd give up a whole bunch of other stuff for? I'm going to summarize my message for this morning this way. Jesus lived, 
He gave his life for the church. And we become a part of that when we enter into a love relationship with him, when we become a child of God. That relationship is a treasure that is worth far more than anything the world has to offer. And there is a day coming when those who don't know Jesus will be separated from those of us who do. And there will be eternal consequences for those who don't. So before we get into this, let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we just pause and just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love and we thank you for Jesus. Father, it's so amazing that the God who created the heavens and the earth not only created us but loved us, loved us so much that he sent his Son for each of us. And we thank you, Father, for your word. And as we open it this morning, just pray your guidance as we look into it, that you would just help us, Father, just to learn new things, to build on the old things that we already know, that all of it might be to your honor and glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a a bit of context. So in Matthew 13, we see eight parables. Okay, one of these is, and depending on how you count it, some count the old and the new as a parable, so eight, possibly seven. The first four parables that were spoken on in the last few weeks were spoken in front of the crowds. Towards the end, just as we get out of these parables, we read that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. In verse 34, he says this, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him there and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus explains it to them and shares these next parables that we'll look at this morning with the disciples away from the crowd. So the first parables he spoke of here, the sower, weeds, mustard seed, and leaven, were in front of the crowds, in front of the multitudes. And then the ones that we'll look at this morning, he spoke to the disciples. So let's look at the first two parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he had found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Our recent speakers have talked about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, At the risk of repeating some of the things they said, I will note a few things, uh, given that this is pretty central to the parables we're looking at this morning. So the parables in this chapter cover the time from when Jesus walked on earth to future day when there will be judgment, when he will return again to the earth. The kingdom of heaven refers to this time between his first and second coming then. The kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and we're in it now. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about includes those who truly believe in Jesus 
and those who only profess to believe in Jesus, but really deep down inside, they aren't true believers. Thankfully for most of us, it includes Gentiles. The kingdom of heaven is going to conclude when Jesus returns again. At that time, the angels will gather the people and there will be a judgment and the wicked will pay some severe and eternal consequences. Now, there were no banks in those days. Going to a money lender was probably the closest thing you could do. And letting people know that he had valuables wasn't always a good idea. It's somebody was sure to try and get their hands on them. There was a feeling that the authorities would try and find a way to tax it away from you or get it away from you. War was relatively common in those days. And if you had valuables lying around or just around, chances are they might disappear. So what did people do? People often hid these things. And hiding them in the field was probably as good a spot as any. You've likely heard it said that possession is nine-tenths of the law. The person who owned the field owned those items that were found in it. In this case, the buried treasure, unless somebody can prove that that treasure specifically was theirs. Now, we could spend a bit of time trying to understand whether this was, quote-unquote, right or not, moral or not, but we won't. Suffice to say, it's the incredible value of this treasure and the joy that the person found it had, and that's what's important about this one. Unlike some of the other parables, Jesus does not give us any interpretation of these ones. From what I've read, most people would say that these parables tell us Jesus is telling us to be just like those people who found these treasures. I think we certainly need to consider that in how we apply it to our lives. It's been noted, however... The parables are speaking about something beyond us. The Bible tells us that Jesus is God and he was with God in the beginning. He gave up his place with God for a while in order to come to earth and to live as a human being. This was part of God's plan for us as we were separated from him because of our sin. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from the dead so that we can have a relationship with him when we acknowledge that We, ourselves, are sinners. We need his forgiveness, and we accept that he died on the cross on our behalf for our sins. And it's a personal thing. Each of us has to do it themselves. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for your friend. Each of us individually has to take that, has to appropriate that, that gift that Jesus offers into our own lives. When we do so, we become part of his family. We're in his church. So these parables speak about Jesus himself. And the Bible tells us that Israel is God's treasured possession, which Jesus came to redeem. For example, in Exodus 19.5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be my treasured possession. Psalm 135.4 says, But the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. Isaiah 43, regarding Israel's value to God, says, Because you are precious and honored in my sight, 
and because I love you. You ever read that in the Bible before? Catch that? Because I love you. I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. He is the one who gave up everything in order to purchase the treasure. Jesus is. Similarly, the pearl of great value is Jesus. It's been suggested that as a pearl starts from an irritation in the flesh, so too was the church formed from the wounds that Jesus incurred when he was sacrificed on the cross for us. First Peter 4 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you and I have been healed. So what does this mean for us? Our attitude should be the same as the one who gave his life for us, shouldn't it? Our attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. You can read a wonderful explanation of that in Philippians 2. Our treasure, our pearl of great value, is that relationship with Jesus as Savior and Lord. You can't attach a dollar figure to it. Jesus gave up his place in Father of Heaven to come up to come live for us, and we should be willing to do the same for him. We should be willing to give up whatever it takes for his sake. As Ryan read earlier in Colossians, from Colossians, it's all about him. He is the first, and he should have the preeminence or first place in everything. In Matthew, Jesus says, Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus also said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one, love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This doesn't mean, though, that we need to literally sell all our possessions. Although we may need to change our priorities, not may, we do need to change our priorities if our possessions are the number one thing in our lives. All we have comes from God and all we have should be used in a way to draw people to God, to glorify Him. While the Bible doesn't use these exact words, I think it's clear that we are to put our time our talents or our abilities and our money where our mouths are. I should note, this does not mean that you can buy your way to heaven. Just because you give does not equate to salvation. Isaiah says, Come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. We can only get to heaven through faith and trust in Jesus. Giving things to God does not result in that salvation, but it can provide evidence of our faith. In the book of Job, the Lord allowed him to be tested, and Job suffered greatly. It's kind of scary to think what happened to him if you read through that. And Job was sitting there and he was wondering why God was letting this happen to him. 
because he couldn't figure that one out. And three of Job's friends came to visit him. And for a long time they stayed silent. Then they started talking. Unfortunately, when they started comforting him, so to speak, they weren't much comfort to him at all. And they challenged him and saying, just admit it. You're a sinner. You've done all these things wrong. And when you admit it, things will change. And as it turned out, they're wrong in most of the things they said. But they did have a few nuggets in there. For example, in chapter 22, his friend Elihu tells him that if he returns to the Almighty and ceases his wickedness, he will be restored. He says, this is the nugget. Then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Hmm. He will be your gold, choice silver. He will be that priceless treasure. And he goes on to say, Surely then you will find delight in the Almighty, and you will lift up your face to God. You will pray to him. He will hear you, and you will fulfill your vows. Now that's a treasure worth having, isn't it? to the jewelry store, I don't know if anyone's been there lately, you'd be amazed at how much money you can spend just to show somebody how much you love them. At least that's how the way they, they, it comes across in the advertisements, right? You've got to spend a lot of money to show them you truly love them. Uh, I, don't, I don't quite subscribe to that. But if you go to the store, you can get real diamonds or you can get ones that look like real diamonds. You can get real pearls or natural pearls, or you can get cultured ones. And they all look beautiful. And while they may look similar to the untrained eye, they are very different, and they come with a very different price tag. If you go traveling somewhere and you're not careful, you could end up paying lots of money for something that looks like the real thing. Maybe it's something you think is filled with gold, but it's lead or something else. Or if you're not careful, you might end up with a Robax watch instead of a Rolex. (laughs) You need to look really closely and you need to study the item to know what you're getting. Why does this matter? Well, there's many who would try and point you away from the real thing, the real treasure. There's many who would try and point you away from Jesus, saying they know the way that leads to peace. They know the way that leads to a fulfilled life, the secret to living. These people are often kind. They're fun to be around. They're probably really good neighbors. You can't argue that. However, they're going for a look-alike product. They're not going for the real thing. And that's fine for some things in life, like jewelry, at least in my circles anyway. Uh, But it doesn't cut it when it comes to things of God. Jesus is the real treasure. And as we read from John 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The third parable that we have this morning is the parable of the net. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, 
The fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. Angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So one fishing technique was to pull a dragnet from both ends. So you'd have people at both ends. You'd, it was weighted down at the bottom and you kind of pull it through the water. And you, when you bring it in, they'd sort out what was caught. So the fishermen would keep what was good or was clean and they would cast aside the bad ones. And we'd expect that anything bad in this case was anything considered unclean as commanded in Leviticus where they were told what is clean, what is unclean. Essentially, uh, anything with fins and scales kind of met the test for being clean. Other creatures were not only unacceptable, they were considered detestable. And that's how God views sin. Now this parable is similar to the parable of the weeds that Jim spoke on a couple of weeks ago. The kingdom of heaven includes those who both truly know Jesus and those who only profess to know him. Both groups of people, though, are going to get caught up in this net. When the net gets pulled in, they're all going to be there. And for those who are considered righteous, oops, helps if I point it in the right direction. Those who are considered righteous those who know Jesus as Savior, for them there is no condemnation and they re- receive eternal life. For those who are considered wicked from that parable, essentially they don't know Jesus. So for them, status quo. They're without Jesus and the result at the end is going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In 2 Thessalonians, we read that this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and be shut out from the presence of the Lord and run from the majesty of his power on the day when he comes, sorry, and from the majesty of his power on the day when he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And I hope this includes all of you, all of us, because you have believed our testimony to you. Revelation 19.5 says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of his fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what differentiates, again, the righteous from the wicked? It's just fairly simple. It's whether or not you put your trust in Jesus. Now, as I've noted earlier, each of us must do that for ourselves. Nobody can do it for you. And some might think, though, how incredibly self-righteous that is of us to say that we are righteous considered righteous, and they're considered wicked. Again, you know, there's a lot of nice people out there, really good neighbors, 
who would fall into the category of wicked. And people can point to all kinds of shortcomings and character flaws in the so-called Christians. Indeed, none of us are perfect and we all sin, right? I sometimes think it would be nice to be able to ski or jog long distances. I'd be in better shape. I'd be healthier. And it'd be good for my mental health. Unfortunately, running and skiing long distances just feels like work to me. I do, however, know numerous people who love to do that and they're really good at it. And I'd love to be able to exercise vicariously through them. Feel that fresh air in my lungs as I go. You know, that burn as you just get close to the finish line and then that, that thrill as you finally get there at the end. Wouldn't that be great? You wouldn't feel like doing the Olympic trail for me this afternoon at Ski Runners? If you do, please wear a mask. I don't want to catch a cold. Are you being out there? Maybe that's why we watch sports, isn't it? Unfortunately, we have to get off the couch if we want to appropriate or reap the benefits of exercise. So, yeah, we can't exercise vicariously through anyone else. We can, however, change our standing with God through someone else. None of us are good enough on our own to be considered righteous. Our standing only comes from Jesus taking his sin upon himself. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Romans. Romans 5, and we'll jump around a little bit. Verses 6 6 to 8 say this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, referring to Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Verse 18 says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. There's our righteousness there. The law was added so trespass might increase, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our righteousness, therefore, comes from Jesus. He changes our status from wicked to righteous. And I should note, it's not a license. It's not permission to continue in sin, to continue living in sin and doing those things we did beforehand. If we did, I think that's evidence that We're just professing. We're not really believing. Paul talks about us becoming slaves to righteousness. We sung earlier that we're not no longer slaves to fear. Indeed, we should be slaves to righteousness. And righteousness leads to holiness. The result of holiness is eternal life. A true relationship with Jesus Christ must be life-changing. In John 1 John 2, 5 and 6, 
we read that whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And that's how we know we're in him. In Matthew 13, 51 to 52, we see the last parable, the last few verses. Jesus said, have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of a storeroom new treasures as well as the old. The disciples told Jesus they understood all the things he said. This may seem strange to us as we know later on. They didn't appear to. I think they may very well have thought they understood what he said at that time. If you're like me, maybe like them, you read a passage in the Bible and it seems perfectly clear. In this case, Jesus even explains some of these parables to us. Then you start to dig a little deeper and realize there's more than meets the eye. The more you dig, the more you realize you've only scratched the surface. And you come to see things from, as you come to see things from other perspectives, the more you realize you want to study further. And on it goes. People have seen the picture of an iceberg where you see a little bit above the water and 90% or so is below the water. Maybe in Timmins we should be thinking mining. We know that there's a lot more there to be mined. But it's a matter of knowing where to find it and having the will to go after it. Maybe an oversimplification, but similarly with God's word, there's so much more beneath the surface. Are we willing to go and search for it? Whether they realize it or not, Jesus is the one who came to fulfill all the old prophecies and bring in a new kingdom. And he was the one showing them both old and new treasures. Owner or the master of the house would provide those things needed for the, the family out of the storeroom or out of the treasures. Uh, treasures in this case can refer to the, the actual things or a location where things are kept. So the meaning is the same. The disciples already knew some things Jesus talked about, but other things were new to them. For example, they knew that the Messiah was to come. They knew the Messiah was to come, but they didn't realize how many people would reject the the Messiah. They knew that the kingdom would be one of righteousness, but they didn't realize there'd be evil ones there as well in the kingdom of heaven I'm talking about. They knew, sorry, we see all this in the parables of the weeds in the net, don't we? We know that the kingdom will start off small, like a mustard seed, and it's going to keep growing. There'll be no stopping it, just like leaven in the dough. The angels one day will separate the righteous from the wicked. I think one of the things that might have been, they might have struggled with, which might have hindered their understanding was, Jesus didn't fit the mold of what people expected of the Messiah. We know that his teaching contradicted that of the religious leaders, how they interpreted the law and the traditions that they established. So what he taught in the parables didn't make sense to most people. 
Jesus taught the disciples the true understanding of what God intended. He explained things to them from God's perspective. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. A couple of examples. But you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's the old approach. Jesus said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard it said, love your enemy, love your, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Old. The new is, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I think the application here for us is that we need to spend time to be able to see and explain things from God's perspective. We need to dig more into God's word. The message is the same. It's an old message. It's that story of Jesus and his love. How we share it with others, though, will change from time to time, person to person. Part of our sharing the good news is being able to take and build on the old knowledge they have already and add new material, new insights, so that they can see who Jesus really is. Being in this earthly kingdom still comes with its ups and downs, though, doesn't it? We live in a broken world, and we know we'll be tempted to try and follow the world. We'll fall short at times, and we know that we're going to experience persecution if we stand up for Jesus. We are called to reflect Jesus in our lives, though. If you're like me, some days are better than others when it comes to that. If we're going to reflect Jesus in our lives, though, we can only do so if we stick close to our Lord. There may be times when we feel like we're on our own when God's not there, but rest assured, He is, even when we don't feel it. Jesus left us His Holy Spirit to guide us. A great aspect of being in God's family is that we have others that we can lean on, others to help us. We help each other, we celebrate together, we pray for each other, we praise God together. We study and grow together and we build each other up for the kingdom. Second Corinthians 4 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that from this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because we know the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So to conclude, just a few things to remember. Jesus gave up his spot with God the Father to come to earth. He lived and gave his life for the church, which we become part of through a love relationship with Jesus. Life with Jesus 
is a treasure that's worth anything this world has to offer. Even when things feel frustrating, perhaps even impossible, he's there with us and for us. We have a spirit and we have a Christian family to support us. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. And there is a day when those who know Jesus will spend eternity with him. Those who don't will suffer eternal condemnation. I just ask the uh, praise team to come back up for a closing song and if they'll close in prayer, please. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, We're just going to close with this song. um, And please stay for lunch after. I forgot to mention that earlier. I'm sure you could smell it. Um, And then also after the lunch is our annual meeting. God, we thank you for today. Thank you for the, the opportunity to gather glorify you and thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you're good. We thank you that everything uh, we go through in life, that you remain who you are and that we can trust in you. God, we thank you for the love and the unity that's here. God, I pray that your word we would dig into and apply to our lives. We thank you for the power you give us to apply it. Your word to our lives. God, we pray that you'd help us see with your eyes and feel with your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.